Praise the Lord for the great gift of gathering us as people, bringing us here safely to proclaim His holy name and to proclaim His holy word. This morning we will consider Psalm 97 in our Psalm a Month series. Here we have 12 verses that extol the greatness and the kingdom and the authority, the lordship and the throne of Yahweh, God, our triune God, the God of Scripture, the only true God, the God who, against the backdrop of sin, every other claim to authority, and all other things in His created realm shines only brighter. Today, we have an aim, I have a goal in the preaching of this message, and that is to direct our attention to the great harvest of faith found in God's works. You could also say found in God's Word. There is a great harvest of faith to be found by drawing our attention, pointing our affections and our mind to understanding, realizing the greatness, the benefit, the glory of that which God has done as it is recorded in His Word. More on this in the course of the message. Suffice it to say, a title for today's sermon is Reaping Light and Joy. Reaping Light and Joy, whatever could this mean. Well, it is building upon the analogy that is granted to us in Psalm 97.11, where we find our psalmist saying this, Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. There are seeds, as it were, poetically described here, of light and joy that are planted. And like any seed that is grown for harvest, that is to the benefit of the planter, the purpose is to reap it in due course. Thus, as we direct our attention once again to the great harvest of faith found in Scripture, we will find ourselves reaping light and joy. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word as we consider Psalm 97 as you're able this morning? Stand out of reverence as His Word is proclaimed in your hearing today. Here we have Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Just a reminder in context of the section of the Psalms that we are in today. We have reached the fifth Psalm in a set of eight, which unequivocally declare the universal lordship comprehensive kingdom of Yahweh. Yahweh is king. Lord in all capital letters, as I trust in your translation, Psalm 97.1 is the covenant holy name for the Lord, the self-proclaimed I am. From Moses' revelation, 
the fiery bush, the burning bush of Exodus 2. The Lord reigns. Without qualification, without uh, the death of a thousand qualifications, as it were, as we're so often uh, attempting, uh, tempted to spin things in our sinful fallenness, the lordship of Yahweh himself is declared as absolute, authoritative over any other claim to authority, over any other person or era that has existed from history past to history future, over any other uh, organized effort to declare an order like a nation or a people or a kingdom over this globe, political systems as we know it and so forth, Christ is king over these. Yahweh's kingdom extends indeed across all of the created realm. Even this world cannot contain him. Contain him. Other verses describe our earth as merely his footstool. And in the words of Psalm 97, we have declaration of as much. Christ is king in New Testament revelation. Yahweh is Lord in Psalm 97.1. We have noted that this set of songs is a subset of an even larger collection that prominently feature the hallowed name of the Lord Yahweh from the first stanza. And these include Psalms 92 through Psalm 107. This section of the Psalter and this particular example in Psalm 97 serve to give wings of faith to the singer as he is often troubled with his own limitations and default finite perspective. There's another imagery in Exodus language where, or at least in the recounting of Exodus events, where the uh, picture of eagle's wings is invoked. Uh, the Lord has the power through his means that he deploys to lift the consciousness or the testimony or the faith or the, uh, the mentality of the hearer, the, the singer, in this case of the song, of the believer, ultimately speaking, above the fray and above the limits of his otherwise very narrow mindset, fraught with his own finite limitations, to lift him up as eagle's wings to see, as it were, from a more sovereign, a more comprehensive perspective. Psalm 97 has this effect when it is sung, when it is appreciated, when it is understood in context. Here's an analogy, a little picture for you, illustration. Imagine a man on crutches living in a tent in North Dakota, right? A man on crutches standing in the doorway of this tent, this canvas tent in North Dakota. And now we imagine the seasons changing and the winds of winter, the blowing snowdrifts begin to descend upon him. Yet he has been promised lodging near southern beaches of Florida. But as he stares down at his leg, which is not fit for walking, and the crutches which just support him for small trips here and there. And as he sees the wind howling around him and the thin walls of his tent, this promise only causes him to despair still more at the thought of walking there. Sure, I've heard of beautiful beaches and temperate weather south of here, but what consolation is that? Isn't it just torture if you can't get there? Psalm 97 in this picture, this illustration is like an airplane flight for that man standing lame before his tent in South Dakota. He gets on the airplane, as it were, and it lifts the weary and destitute sojourner off the ground. He does not even need to walk. In fact, he could even fall asleep for 60 or more minutes and only to wake to the sound of his captain informing him uh, that the passengers are now flying over the Appalachian Mountains and will arrive at their destination before they know it. So you see the picture here? The plane ride 
is this alternate means, this provision that overcomes this man's limitations, that lifts him, lifts him to new heights and translates him through this mechanism, as it were, to places of glorious promise. Psalm 97 is like that plane ride for the soul. An alternate title for Psalm 97 could also be an Exodus psalm. Why? Because the author recalls events and lessons, revelations, events and instructions from this 40-year experience. But he does so from the vantage point of God's sovereignty witnessed over time. If you were there and you're afraid your shoes would wear out, you wouldn't know to praise the Lord upon realizing after 40 years that your sandals were still as new as the day that you started your journey leaving Egypt. But Psalm 97 does have that perspective and benefit. It looks back upon that 40-year wandering, and instead of you know, the limitations of our fallenness, our frailty, and our weariness, you know, moving us to complain and to uh, uh, question God's authority and His will, no, instead, Psalm 97 shows you the plane ride view over this era of Israel's history. And it points to the things that allow us to reap a harvest of light and joy, if you will. It points to revelations from this time. And when witnessed over the course of God's decree taking shape in His providence over these 40 years, the spirit of the worshiper, as it were, is lifted as he remembers the kingdom of Yahweh revealed in and through history. And this, I probably don't need to tell you, is of great benefit because we all are faced with moments, opportunities, and trials in our own life where our vision can get very narrow and all we see is the crisis, the trouble in front of us, and we fail to be lifted, as it were, on eagle's wings to get that plane ride view of God's purposes, yes, even today, in our own lives and in this era of history. So recognizing with the benefit of Scripture in Psalm 97 as an example, these things, it brings for our souls, it yields for our souls a harvest of light and joy, light for illumination, joy for gladness and the lifting of our spirits for believers of all ages. There is a harvest of light and joy for believers of all ages as we reap the bounty of these seeds of revelation planted in the soil of covenant history. There is, again, a harvest of light and joy for believers of all ages as we reap the bounty of these seeds of God's revelation planted in the soil of covenant history, Exodus, for example, yielding for us this great harvest. And so this is the basic idea and an introduction to our text today. Let me give you a heading by which we'll divide the psalm into four parts. The heading is, The Upright Reap Light and Joy by Way of, or an alternate heading, I'll probably uh, interchange between the two. Alternate heading could be, Illumination and Gladness Spring to Life as We Behold. Illumination and gladness spring to life as we behold a cosmic, that is global, worldwide, or sweeping proclamation in Psalm 97, 1, and then a bookend at 12. On upri the upright reap light and joy by way of manifest glory in verses 2 through 5. And again, light and joy, a harvest of the same, is yielded by beholding the Most High's judgments in verses 6 through nine. And finally, there is a harvest of light and joy by way of covenant exhortation and assurance, verses 10 through 12. First of all, the upright reap light and joy by way of cosmic proclamation, or 
illumination and gladness spring to life as we behold a cosmic proclamation. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. All right, uh, young people, do you remember the stop game we call it sometimes? So I give you a key word, and I'm going to read through the psalm, and whenever you hear this word, you tell me to stop. And this is an exercise we do in family worship sometimes to train our mind to notice repeated themes in Scripture. So here's the key word, all. Guys, so when you hear the word all, tell me to stop. Kids, are you ready? The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Very good. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Excellent. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. Very good. All worshipers of images, oh, one person got it, that's correct, are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Excellent. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. Excellent. You are exalted far above all gods. Excellent. We'll stop there. So that was, I didn't even count. That was quite a few references to all. Now, the reason I wanted to note those is because with each repeated all in Psalm 97, we have a stronger case for the universal language, the reach and the unequivocal claim of authority that the Lord has. Thus, this proclamation that the Lord reigns and He ought to be worshipped is not a proclamation restricted to a little people group, namely tribal Israel in uh, Palestine at the time this song was written. But no, this is a proclamation that through the record of God's Word, and through his ordination through history, is to be proclaimed to the coastlands. That is to say, all people are to hear the message that Yahweh is king. All the earth is to hear the sound that the Lord is their creator, their sovereign, and their savior. All the peoples are to witness his glory as those his emissaries and ambassadors point to his works through history. All other gods, that is authorities, Elohim in the original language, which uh, doesn't necessarily mean false gods exclusively, but all indeed leaders or claims to authority, anybody who is vested with any significance, all of them are to bow before the Lord. All of the earth, all gods are nothing compared to the Lord most high, and so on and so forth. This, Psalm 97, 1 through 12, in fact, but it opens with this call to worship, this call to praise, uses this universal language to emphasize that the kingdom of Yahweh knows no bounds and that the authority of Yahweh is over all. And his Savior, his Christ, his anointed King, his resurrected and ascended Messiah will one day enjoy the worship of all in some sense as every knee bows, as every tongue confesses to the glory of the Father. Brought to their knees by his judgments or brought to their knees by his mercy in his message of salvation through his blood alone. This is the cosmic proclamation that bookends this psalm. The Lord reigns. Let all the earth rejoice. It's a call to praise. And then it closes begging, bidding 
beckoning the righteous to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Let us pause because it relates to our Genesis series on the term coastlands. Young people, which one of Noah's sons, which, uh, his legacy was marked by coastlands. Which one of Noah's sons' legacy was marked by coastlands? Anybody know? Was it Shem, Ham, or Japheth that is associated with coastlands? Japheth. Japheth and the coastlands. So just a reminder, Noah prophesies over his sons. And what we've seen by way of theme is Japheth is known for inhabiting the, inhabiting the coastland regions. Seth is known, uh, Shem, excuse me, is known for the significant sons, and Ham is known as a city builder and his, and his descendants. Now, the coastlands refer to, throughout the scripture, the outlying regions, as we often noted. It's the distant reaches. And so in the language of Psalm 97.1, as we pair it with our Genesis series, it makes it an, an even stronger case how far the reach of the Lord's worship is to go. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands, all the outlying regions, all the distant corners of the earth be glad. So what is a coastland today? What would be an application of this concept in our uh, time? There's a story that whenever a, it comes up in the news, it kind of triggers my attention, of the North Sentinelese people. There's a, a my, uh, I don't know, a five-mile island or something like that. It's very, fairly small in the Indian Ocean. And there's a tribe of people who are warlike, and they tend to kill whoever visits them, no, no matter if they come bringing gifts or not. From time to time, you hear a story of a fated missionary who will arrive in their shores only to meet his demise. What's perhaps most interesting in the stories that I've read is the attitude of the rest of the developed world at large as they recount these events. They say, when will people, you know, whatever, privileged white Westerners learn to just leave these people alone? Almost as if the killing of someone who came just to give them the gospel and some supplies was justified. Well, this is a great example of a coastland region. In spite of their hostility to any visitor, in spite of their hostility to the gospel, the proclamation of Psalm 97.1 is yet universal. Let the coastlands, let the many coastlands, let the North Sentinelese people, Sentinelese people be glad. And should the Lord tarry, and as missionaries continue, yes, that land will one day be conquered for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message and the hope of the scriptures. I don't know when and how he'll do it. I don't know who he'll use, but we have this promise that there is an inevitable march of the glory of the Lord covering this globe as the waters even cover the sea. Why? Because he reigns and the earth is called to rejoice and the many coastlands are called to take joy in the fact that their creator is their Lord and Savior. And so it is right and proper to pray, to continue to follow the Great Commission even if it means giving our own life for the cause of the gospel. Why? Because this is a cosmic proclamation. In each one of my points today, there's also an Exodus connection. Would you turn with me to Exodus 15? As a few times in this message, Lord willing, we'll go back and forth to see some of the background behind these words. There are many echoes from the events of Exodus. Again, this heavens or bird's eye view, if you will, of God's grace through covenant history is seen in the light of real-time events that took place in Israel's history. And some of them were commemorated, especially after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. This is described as Moses' song when he praises the Lord for what he has done in delivering his people from the hand of Pharaoh. As he brings his song to a close, he confesses this in verse 18, The Lord will reign forever and ever. 
Verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Can you see how this moment in the history of God's people inspired such praise? What moved Moses to proclaim, the Lord will reign forever and ever? It was this, having just witnessed the Lord with a weapon in his hand of an entire sea that he held apart for the safe passage of his people into the promised land, in one move of his uh, gigantic, if you will, hands to speak in this kind of anthropomorphic language, if you will, God releasing his sovereign and extraordinary hold back on the seas. That one moment, that one weapon in the hand of Yahweh declared victory in one instant, one snap of the fingers went... All of a sudden, the most powerful army, presumably, in all the earth at the time, was drowned. Now, if you had just experienced that moment of triumph in your history where you didn't even have so much as to brandish a sword, you didn't even have so much as to shout a war cry, you didn't have to gather so much as a single chariot, and the most powerful army that the world could boast was destroyed by the Lord, who is God over His creation, yes, when you witness that seed... In history, it reaps, if you notice it, light and joy for the believer, illumination and gladness, because our Lord has proven in that instance that He will reign forever and ever. Pharaoh and his horsemen be drowned. Pharaoh and his horsemen be drowned. Whatever power that raises its ugly fist in defiance against a righteous and holy God, even this day, even if it's our country, America, if she continues to double down in her rebellion, America be drowned, the Lord will reign forever and ever. We pray that she would confess her sins, speaking in general terms, and return to the Lord, whose sovereign grace alone, whose hand of mercy, whose steadfast love, whose patience has endured with us thus far. Thus the upright reap a harvest of illumination and gladness, light and joy by way of noting this universal language, this cosmic proclamation of God's sovereignty. Whom does it concern? Psalm 97, the answer in verses 1 and 12 is everyone. Second major point. The upright reap light and joy by way of manifest glory. Our Exodus text for this passage will be chapter 19, so turn there with me if you would. Again, our alternate heading. Illumination and gladness are reaped, or they spring to life as we behold. His manifest glory. Psalm 97, 2. Notice how God's glory is evident in the following examples. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. This is revelation phenomena, if you will. It is elements of nature that are used by the Lord in extraordinary ways at particular moments in covenant history to demonstrate His power and His glory. Now, what events does the author of Psalm 97 refer to? Well, may I suggest one? I think there are many that could be associated in part, but perhaps one is most comprehensive with this language. Turn to Exodus 19. This is the Exodus connection of Psalm 97, 2 through 5. 
You'll remember these moments, I trust, as we read one of the most dramatic events, times in history where heaven and earth testified to the power of God as His law is given on Mount Sinai. Verse 16, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. Does that language ring a bell? That's what, that was echoed in Psalm 97. Thick cloud, thunder, lightning. It is striking a similar uh, picture in our mind, is it not? And Moses goes on, Exodus 16, uh, 19, 16. A very loud trumpet blast, uh, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people to the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Young people, what did the Lord give Moses when he ascended to the top of this mountain? Young people, do you know? That is correct. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses in the context of fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, thick clouds, a trumpet blast, and a mountain shaking before the terrified people. The people stood in the presence of this revelation phenomena. They stood in witnessing this manifest glory quaking in their boots. How could they stand before such a righteous and holy God? They were witnessing, after all, in His terrifying presence, sheer holiness, majesty, awesome, terrifying uh, power and glory of the Lord Almighty as He shakes the earth, as He comes down in this form, as smoke and cloud and fire and lightning engulf, and the, there begins to be an earthquake, and the elements themselves quiver and shake and tremble and bow before the God who made them in the first place. This is manifest, manifest glory. If you ask yourself, how is God evident? How is He evident? How has He made Himself known through history? Well, let me tell you, the upright can reap a harvest of light and joy by taking note of moments like this in covenant history. Is there not a harvest of illumination and gladness that springs as we behold how powerful our God is in light of these events? Yes, we see this in the Exodus connection. Now, in the center of, chapter, of this reference in Psalm 97, we have this statement, verse 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. And note the, the rest of the sentence, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A moment ago, I asked you what was significant about this moment, not just that the elements shook at the presence of the Lord, but God revealed Himself furthermore in the giving of His law. The Ten Commandments into the hands of His servant Moses, who was serving something of a priest and certainly a prophet in this instance. He alone was able to ascend the mountain. He received this testimony of the Word and the law of God, and then he returned down the mountain in the midst of this earth-shattering presence of the Lord to deliver to the people the law of God. Now, if this was the event that punctuated this moment of the giving of God's word, 
Do you think that we are supposed to take the Word of God seriously? Absolutely. This moment where the Word of God was delivered to the people, do you think that was intended to be just an optional rules to live by, helpful life coach hints? No, that would be blasphemy to consider the law and the Word of God so lightly. This was a gift from the Almighty stooping low to deliver His revelation to people in an awesome manifestation of His authority and power. So if you don't take it seriously, the picture is you will be destroyed before the one who has power to descend in lightning and fire and thick cloud and darkness and stir up an earthquake underneath your feet. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. And that righteousness and justice is revealed through His Word. It's revealed through His law. Do you think there is any other foundation? Or do you think this is up for review? Do you think that we can redefine justice on our own terms? No. If we do so, we will face the terrifying presence of a mighty God who is jealous for His holy Word. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. And therefore... The psalmist recognizes as much when he invokes this language of the terrifying presence of God and the giving of his holy law. His righteousness and justice are revealed in his word. They are the foundation of his throne and the weight of his authority is communicated through his law and through his word. You know, we had a, family, a conversation in our family last night going through family devotions and a little bit of Psalm 97 and we were lamenting the fact, the fact that justice is so often fallen in the streets and the public square, as it were. There's such a miscarriage of righteousness, even in our system of jurisprudence in America. And it's an irony, because we live in a society that despite all of the failures of justice, we are obsessed with this idea of justice. Why is it such a failure? Why is there such unrighteousness in the land? Why does it seem like we live in an upside-down and perverse and fallen era and country everywhere we turn as we look at the rulings and the precedent and the trajectory of those who make decisions by way of a statute in the legislatures of our land? Well, it's because we are not acknowledging that righteousness and justice undergird the throne of God and there is no place to stand in righteousness. There's no justice to be found outside of what he has decreed through his holy word. The only other place to stand is the shaking foundation, the earth-swallowing judgment, the uh, hell-condemning thick darkness and fire that will descend on those who take lightly and disregard and impugn and uh, spit upon God's holy word. And there is a day of reckoning coming. This manifests glory, however, to the positive. If we recognize it for what it is, it reaps a great harvest of light and joy for us. We realize that justice and righteousness are to be found in God's word. And when we see how seriously he takes it, it stirs our affections to take it seriously as well. And we begin to see the world in our own life, right and wrong, questions of ethics and morality in light of the only true standard by which they can be judged, in light of God's word and law. There are other, other witnesses in history to the manifest glory of the Lord similar to this Sinai moment. We were recalling a few of them in our family worship again yesterday. One that I thought of was the chariots of the Lord versus the armies of Syria in 2 Kings 7, 6. These are in your notes. We won't go to them this morning. But just to mark further instances where the manifest glory of the Lord is shown 
to vanquish the upright and to glorify His holy name against His enemies. And in this case, the Lord allows the Syrian armies to hear the chariots of heaven and they run away so scared that they leave their weapons and their armaments and their resources and get out of there as fast as you can imagine such that lepers reap the spoils the following day. Genesis 19.24, my wife recalled this one in association with our text today. Can you think of another time where fire went out before him and burned up his adversaries all around? Well, you can turn to Genesis 19.24 and find that very thing happening in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. In their case, fire fell from heaven. And as this sulfur rain of burning, incinerating matter descended upon the cities of the plains, God had His way with these people and His judgment consumed them in a moment for their perversion, and for their sin. Additionally, we see in Exodus 3.2, what Israel called the fiery bush moment. He said he preferred that over the burning bush, and I agree with him as the fire did not need any fuel. We have this fiery bush where the Lord Himself appeared as fire for, before Moses Himself, giving Him the charge and the promise of deliverance from the imposing, the intimidating king Pharaoh. Numbers 16.32-35 Um, This was recalled in our conversation yesterday as well. Earth and fire are both used as weapons, just as the sea was at the Exodus to destroy Korah and his followers. Perhaps I will read this one to you. This is in Numbers 16, verse 32. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 16. This is one of those dramatic moments that that illustrates Psalm 97, verses 2 through 5. In uh, Numbers, again, 1632, we pick up on the story of this rebellion against the Lord's authority through Moses, and this is what happened to the people. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they, all and, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly." And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. Note verse 35. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. So you see, there is a harvest of understanding, of illumination and gladness reaped for the believer as he sees the power of God to vanquish his and the Lord's enemies. Were not, were not these examples in recorded history after all of fire going before him and burning up his adversaries, of mountains melting like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth? We recently had a conference for common slaves, our, our uh, ministers network and church network. And uh, I was reminded, we, there was a series on the, uh, several preachers were preaching through the first four commandments, what we call the first table of the law. And as the first sermon opened, as I recall, he noted Exodus 19, that the earth shook in anticipation of the giving of the law. Then he reminded us of other moments in covenant history where the earth shook, particularly the moment of Jesus' own death in Matthew 27. And I love to juxtapose what we just read with Matthew 27 we just read is the earth shaking, opening up, and swallowing the Lord's enemies. When we juxtapose that with the earth shaking at the death of Jesus in Matthew 27, it in fact has the opposite effect. When you place these two accounts 
of God's glory side by side, you see some of the most dramatic pictures recorded in history of His justice and His mercy. Matthew 27, 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. And notice, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Here we have the centurion and those who were with him reaping a harvest of light and joy as the earthquakes, and this time, bodies of saints who have gone before are resurrected unto the proclamation of among the most, if not the most significant moment in all of history, where the death of Jesus Christ satisfied the payment for their sin and guaranteed their own resurrection at the second resurrection, and this, this provisional sign of the same in their bodies being reconstructed for this moment to announce that the Lord over the earth, who has the power to shake it as He gives His law, as He kills His Son, as He raises Him from the dead, that same power is the power that we trust in to satisfy the conditions that were necessary for our sins to be washed away and the judgment that Jesus took upon His back. You know, the judgment that our sin deserved was pictured on Mount Sinai as, earth, as the earth shook and the fire befell and thick clouds and smoke dwelt. And on the day that Christ died, those same signs, it's no accident, reappeared. The sky was darkened, the earth shook, and, a voice, and voices were heard from heaven. And bodies were seen raised from the dead, signaling that there is a harvest of gladness. There is a harvest of illumination for those who recognize these seeds sown through history. So look at His manifest glory, church. We are called to do so through Psalm 97. And if the author had plenty to behold at the time of its authorship, how much more do we with the New Testament in our hands? Point three, and more briefly this morning. The upright reap light and joy by way of most high judgments. Psalm 97, verse 6, The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. What reckoning can we expect from the Most High? Well, when the Most High comes, and He comes at times in history, and He will come again, ultimately at the end of history, and these covenants of the Lord, in His advent at these particular times of choosing, we see that He is evident in Most High in the judgments of the Most High. Again, there is illumination and gladness that fills our soul. It springs to life as we behold that there is a day of reckoning for those who are in rebellion and there is vindication for the righteous. Condemnation and vindication. These two are featured in verses 6 through 9. Note the condemnation of the ungodly. All the worshipers, it says in verse 7, of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. That's the condemnation of the rebels. But then there is the vindication of the righteous in the next verse. 
Again, followed by the sort of back and forth analogy in verse 9, or this back and forth juxtaposition, condemnation, vindication. It says in verse 9, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. As we look to the Most High and His judgments in Scripture, we see even in our text today that Yahweh's adversaries are identified as idol worshipers, the wicked, and the like. He has adversaries, image worshipers, and the wicked. And what, do they, what can they expect by way of judgment if they do not repent before the Lord? They tremble before Him. They are burned up before Him. And they are put to shame. This is evidence of the Lord's power as He brings in due course in His day of reckoning consequences for the unrepentant. This is the reckoning that we can expect. But on the positive side of things, for those who are His covenant people, for those who place faith in the way of salvation that He has made, the opposite is true. We in Christ are vindicated. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the people see His glory. And more particularly, as it refers to his chosen people, Zion, which represents that. Verse 8, hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. Remember our thesis. The upright have a harvest to reap of gladness and joy, illumination and light. As a result of recognizing where God has planted uh, such things or evidence of the same through history, the Zion, Zion and the daughters of Judah, they look to the judgments of the Lord and they are glad and they rejoice. Zion is that covenant name that refers to the place, the city that isn't built by the hands of man. It's not built by the legacy of Ham, the city builders. It is a place that is built by God. The city, so to speak, that Abraham looked to, whose designer, whose architect was the Lord himself. Zion is that place. Zion is represented in the Old Testament by the ascent to worship at the temple, which is the place of God's union with man, where sacrifice was provided and communion was purchased so that a sinner could stand without condemnation before a righteous God. Because why? He had been sprinkled with blood, as we studied last week. We are elect exiles, Peter tells us, for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What does this sprinkling do? Well, when the blood is applied to us as sinners... It atones for our sins. It renders us pure in His sight. It, it, sin, it symbolizes, it indicates that our sin is judged by the sacrifice. And when that blood is sprinkled on the altar, as it were, it represents acceptable sacrifice, a satisfactory payment for sin for the Lord. This all happened in symbolic form in the sacrificial system at Zion. And this was pictured in the ultimate Zion when Jesus Christ's own blood was applied to our hearts in His sprinkling. Thus, we stand before the Lord with our sin paid for, and that blood stands before the Father, Jesus' blood, as a sufficient sacrifice for our sin. This is Zion. And Zion hears and is glad when they consider the judgments of the Lord. They are the condemnation of the unrighteous, but they are the vindication of those who trust in the sacrifice that He has provided, the substitute bloodshed to save them from their sins. And I love the picture. This is echoed in Psalm 48, verse 11, almost word-for-word word language. I love this picture. The daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Who are the daughters of Judah? Well, in poetic form, they represent the most innocent and vulnerable. Those who are most innocent and vulnerable. When there is an unjust system, when there is a wicked city, 
Who are the first victims? Who are the first casualties? Usually the most innocent, relatively speaking, and the most vulnerable. Think of abortion in our land to the tune of tens and tens of millions of babies. You need no other example of the foundations of God's throne spurned and rejected in our land than the fact that the innocent daughters and sons are slaughtered to the tunes, tune of millions. But it is not so in Zion. It is not so in Zion. In the place where God inhabits, in the place where righteousness and true justice are the foundation of God's order, of His world, and of His throne, ultimately consummate in His kingdom, taking foothold without any sin anymore in a new heaven and new earth. In this place, the most innocent and vulnerable, yes, even the daughters of Judah rejoice in peace and assurance and satisfaction and happiness and life eternal and abundant life through Christ. The Most High, and we have the promise of Zion so we can rejoice, even though we may feel vulnerable when we look to the harvest of light and joy that we can reap by noting God's works through history. And that's what Psalm 97 points us to. Final point this morning. Well, I should just say by way of passing, for an Exodus connection, Exodus 15, 11, Moses praises and exalts Yahweh above all gods. This relates to Most High judgments as there is another reference to his song upon the victory over Pharaoh. And also Exodus 16, 4 through 7, bread falls from heaven, thus the heavens testifying, proclaiming his righteousness by way of manna. And he tells the people, Moses does, Lord as well, that you shall see the glory of the Lord. And so they do. And in this instance, as Exodus echoes Psalm 97, verse 6 comes to life. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. This brings up the final point this morning. Covenant exhortation and assurance. And how ought we then worship? The remaining verses answer this question. Verses 10 through 12. O you who love the Lord... Hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. As our author of Psalm 97, by way of refrain, brings his song to a conclusion, we find here covenant exhortation and assurance. An Exodus connection might be Exodus 18. Here Jethro praises the Lord upon the, the uh, knowledge through the testimony of Moses, his son-in-law, of what has happened in the vanquishing of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And this is what he testifies to in Exodus 18.8. Or this is how he speaks. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian, Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that God had done to Israel. So let me just pause there and note. Do you see how Jethro is an example of one who is reaping a harvest of light and joy? He's receiving the testimony of God's word by way of a witness, firsthand witness, namely Moses. And we have Moses' firsthand witness right here. And what is he moved to do? He worships the Lord. He rejoices for the goodness of the Lord. He has received light, illumination. He has received joy, gladness as a result of this seed of joy planted as it were, now springing forth, this seed of light as it were, planted now springing forth in the testimony of what God has done. And this is what Jethro says, verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. 
and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. So we have feasting, we have sacrifice, we have worship, and we have the acknowledgement of joy and gladness and illumination, as it were, in light of what has been done. We go back to Psalm 97.10, and we are adjured to do the same. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. You may feel oppressed, but imagine yourself in 430-year era of conscripted slavery in Egypt. That is some real oppression that we cannot even imagine compared to what we might be going through by many standards anyways. Not, don't want to diminish in any way trials, deep and dark as they may be right now, that afflict some of us in the hearing of this message. Where is there gladness to be found? Where is there a harvest of light and joy to be found in the midst of such oppression? It is to look at the seeds planted now springing forth into life as we recognize them of God's delivering power through history. Jethro spontaneously broke out into praise as he realized that God had delivered his people from the hand of the wicked, from the hand of Pharaoh. He broke out in praise, in sacrificial offering, and in feasting before the Lord with his brothers that, as it were, spiritually speaking, who had witnessed the same, recognizing that God preserves the lives of his saints. This is the Exodus connection and our title revisited, Reaping Light and Joy, as we look to evidence of God's work through history. How ought we worship then? We should, with Jethro, with Moses, Exodus 15, this last passage, Exodus 16, or Exodus 18, we should take a cue from those who witness such things as we witness them through the record of Scripture to do exactly what Psalm 97.12 calls us to, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. How are we righteous? We've already said, when a sufficient sacrifice in Zion is provided. We are righteous because of the blood of Jesus. And as we look to this event now from the vantage point of where we are in covenant history, what greater harvest still is there of understanding, of illumination and gladness as we see that Jesus Christ was crucified for us and that His blood shed is the source of our righteousness. How ought we then worship as we consider the gospel? We rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the testimony that we behold in Your holy scriptures of the awesome, unchallengeable power of You, our almighty God. I pray that we would look to these moments and, and glean from them a great harvest of light and joy as we consider your work through history. Lord, I pray that you would give us such a strength, such an endurance, such a perseverance that whatever trials you call us to endure would only strengthen our faith as you intend. I pray, Lord, that this supernatural working of your Spirit inside of us would make use of the means of the proclamation of your Word this day to prepare us to be a better witness and to prepare us to endure during whatever you may call us to. I pray, Lord, that as we seek to do so, that we would glorify and testify to your name and point, Lord, the lost to Jesus Christ, who alone holds the keys to glory, who alone can render us righteous by his blood. We thank you for the power of your word to transform us and renew our minds. 
We pray it would do so as we seek to follow you this week. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.